This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. In just four years, the Launchpad has helped 216 writers get signed, 68 projects get set up, 35 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. To check out their current and upcoming writing competitions, visit tblaunchpad.com and see how the Launchpad can jumpstart your professional writing career. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about stunt specs with our special guest, Billy Domino, who wrote the infamous Seinfeld 9-11 stunt spec and was most recently a staff writer on Family Guy. Hi, Billy. Hey, infamous. Well, I'm, I'm scared of myself right now. <laughs> I've committed some horrible crime for which I will pay in this life or the next. <laughs> So before you were kind of rocketed into fame and success with this script, what were you doing? Studying, working, writing? Uh, Working, writing, and had been studying in the past. So yeah, a little bit of all of it. The most recent job that I was doing, you know, pretty much full time before the script hit was I was a tutor, you know, for working for different companies, doing independently too. And that's actually how the script came about. I randomly had a student who had, you know, essentially like leftover credit through this tutoring company. And she had just started as a sketch student at UCB, was you know, figured the way she'd use that, you know, leftover credit was asked someone who's got experience, you know, to go over sketches, rough drafts with her every uh, week before class. And so we were doing that for a few weeks. Eventually she got a an assignment that was um, write a sketch that's purposefully in bad taste. And we were talking over some possible ideas, but she was essentially you know, saying like, well, I'm, I'm having trouble you know, visualizing really what this means. And so I was trying to give her examples and start off, well, okay, here's something that was in bad taste. There was a script that was written, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. A guy wrote a spec episode of Friends uh, where every where all the cast members get AIDS. And so obviously that's something terrible taste. And so then I started spitballing off of that. You know, imagine if there's a Seinfeld episode, you know, that took place, you know, during 9-11 and then I just stopped for a second I'm like let's actually explore that idea for a second mm-hmm. in that coffee bean over the course of you know five minutes mm-hmm. just laid out okay well here's you know what these different characters would do you know in this scenario and so I was pitching this to her I was like take this idea you know go run with it write a five page you know mini Seinfeld episode that's your assignment that you'll nail it and she's like okay I'll think about that came back next week and it's like yeah I didn't go with that it felt I felt a little bit over my head <laughs> on it I'm like okay totally fine just so you know I'm taking back that idea I'm doing something <laughs> yeah. I'm and, stealing it back yeah exactly you know I gave it it's like you know you throw the bag at Goodwill realize there's a pair of good shoes in there and then you're rummaging <laughs> through it you know with a knife how many stunt specs had you read before you wrote that Seinfeld one and how did they kind of influence that writing so to be honest I've never read a true stunt spec I, well I should say uh, I've had some fr- uh, friends write them that I've read uh, my friend Nicole Conlon actually wrote a really funny one a little bit before me that was a people versus OJ Simpson stunt spec script and like eventually you should know that it, it's called the briefcase switcheroo so <laughs> taking that form and you know just turning it into an 80s sitcom mm-hmm. um, it, it did a really good job of it it was my and I've actually had always heard about it uh, in sort of you know a Hollywood myth but I'd never even read the the friend spec myself I only you know came into it after my script started getting around I was able to actually find someone who had a copy of it and All was right. able to forward it on to me but I think my experience of you know just the idea of you know form parody and um, and, and the whole idea of you know play with you know the expected form of any given medium you know i have a lot of experience with sketch with improv and just in general in terms of any project that i like to take on i'm always looking for okay what is the expectation here what is the well-trod territory and how can i what is it about that medium and that structure that i really enjoy but 
what also do I feel, you know, needs to be reinvented for my sake, for the audience's sake, uh, so that we can, you know, get some new appreciation for something that may have been done a few dozen or a few hundred or thousand times. So it was almost like a like a satire of Seinfeld originally, right? Yeah, it's. I, I mean, I was ultimately really happy in terms of how the script came out and and was received in that people thought of it as a you know sort of loving tribute, but at the same time, it's like okay, let's recognize the things that Seinfeld does every you know single time. What where what do they almost sort of like use as a crutch and the idea. Uh, you know, and it's really just how you would write any, you know, spec episode, but with just sort of a, a slightly, you know, darker eye towards it. You know, okay, you know, we know that Jerry's going to need to be overly obsessive about something. He's mm-hmm. going to need to sort of kick into some sort of OCD mode. And so that's how I got, you know, and that was actually something of the, the four main ideas. I'll give credit my student, um, Haley, was, uh, we were tossing around ideas, and she was actually the first one to throw out the idea of like, oh, maybe it's something to do with the cleanliness. Right. And yeah, because I, I was initially actually talking about Kramer, I'm like, oh, I don't know, what's he doing? Maybe he's trying to, like, you know, he's trying to scheme somehow. Maybe he's trying to, you know, sell Authentic World Trade Center dust. Oh, we're Jared's dust. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. You're absolutely right on that. So, Haley, uh, eternal gratitude to you on that. But, yeah, similarly, um, you know, George's like, okay, it's going to be about, you know, a Napoleon complex, essentially. Mm -hmm. What does he feel he's missing out on that he could be, you know, really, you know, nailing, but the world's just not giving him a chance? Oh, well, he's always, you know, wanted to, you know, be here. Everyone around him is here right now. He's the one who's left out. How can he capitalize on that? Kramer is going to have, you know, some weird connection to something that is, you know, is just <laughs> that raises far more questions than it could ever answer. All right. He knew one of the hijackers and he yeah. gave him a box cutter. Elaine was the one thing that I was feeling like sort of almost a little bit down on the, the story that ended up with her because I, I hated the idea sort of a, a Bechdel test way of, oh, it's about her relationship to a guy who was involved in it. So one that was a slightly begrudging angle, be like, oh, they just in this, if this was a real Seinfeld episode of the day, they would have based it around a boyfriend of hers, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, Julie Louise Dress has always played that so well. And I, looking back on, she always plays those. You can almost see boiling just under the surface in her performances. Not this again, but reinventing it as she's going. It's like, fine, I'm going to make this my own. Was actually what led me to write what ultimately was for me the most satisfying part of the episode. I give... Elaine, this monologue, you know, bashing George, the guy who he's pretending to be, saved her boyfriend, and now she has to be still be with him. So it allowed me to give the character some ownership over this, you know, shitty position she was in, both story-wise and structurally. And you mentioned that it would originated from trying to do something in bad taste. So were you ever worried about that content or copying flack from from that kind of thing? How did you go into it with an eye towards being provocative but still being sensitive? I mean. Yeah, because that was the question as I was going in. How do I strike that? balance and what balance do I want to strike in the first place is this something that you know just as you said like that assignment uh, was that my student had you know is this about just putting on a circus of how freakish this episode could be if we make mm-hmm. it about 9-11 should I go as crazy as have you know the street stream of dead bodies essentially something like that okay no I know no pretty early I didn't want to do that should I on the other end of the spectrum almost have some heart to the episode should I allow some legitimate catharsis you know mm-hmm. you know that you know maybe that Seinfeld normally wouldn't take on but is that necessary because of the dramatic weight of the of the actual content here no i don't want to do that either because i'm already in so deep with it you know that i'm taking on 9-11 in the first place that's on you that you really can't apologize as you're going for it and on top of that i mean the classic line with seinfeld is no hugging no learning so i don't want to put them in that situa- situation now so it's just sort of 
being very careful as I'm going not to perp- not to go so far over a line that it's almost distracting from the episode as itself as a spec. I don't want you. I, I like this to be seen as a spec first and a, sun, a stunt spent spec second. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of S's there. So, I, for instance, there was one line that I eventually modified a little bit. There's uh, a scene where Kramer is calling Jackie Childs from a phone booth in Tribeca. And a woman is, you know, pounding on the door, you know, with a picture of her missing husband, you know, please, please help me out. And eventually in the final script, it's Kramer getting really nervous and and upset because of that. And he just pretends that he can't speak English and it ends up working well. Initially, I had the line there, you know, him like lean out of the phone booth and saying essentially, you know, like, shut up. You know, some of us have real problems right now. (laughs) And that felt just like an inch too far, too callous, even though the idea of Kramer you know, mistaking his want of a box cutter being equal to or greater than a woman's husband being missing and presumably dead. That's potentially on game, but it was just a little bit too much. That's interesting that you really try to hone down on this idea that initially was meant as a as a speck of Seinfeld and like the first degree of I want to basically create a fake episode of Seinfeld as a spec script instead of just this insane conceit on top of it. I'm kind of curious on the sort of homework side of it, how much research did you do on the show? Were you a big fan of Seinfeld before going into it? Did you watch episodes, read scripts, uh, all that stuff? Yeah, what I did, um, I mean, I was a huge fan of Seinfeld growing up. It was probably, you know, the first adult sitcom that I became aware of and, you know, would watch regularly, you know, in reruns, you know, even before it was off the air, you know, Ari, Ari was so strong in indication. So, you know, it was type of thing that, you know, in the afternoons on, you know, the local Fox channel or whatever, I'd be, I'd be catching reruns of when I was in first or second grade and starting to get a feel for it. In terms of rediscovering it for the sake of this spec, I hadn't watched it, you know, much in the past 10 years. And I think as, you know, my tastes had changed, I'd started to assume, okay, well, it was great for the 90s. I'm sure it's still a very, very good sitcom, but, you know, it probably hasn't aged, you know, amazingly well. It's not as good as, you know, I or anyone else thought it was back then. And to revisit certain episodes, it was just such a a refreshing reminder of like, oh my God, this show is so, so fundamentally brilliant in terms of the way they structure these stories to weave together. And in in a way that seems almost gimmicky now, but for the time in terms of the care and the brilliance with which they're able to do it, it it pays off beautifully and it is 100% worthy of all the praise it's ever been given. I went back to a few key episodes that I remember that came back to me regularly in my mind as, oh, those both hit structurally everything I'm looking for and just constantly surprised me with their sense of humor and how absurd it is. The one, one of the ones that I went back to uh, was, I think it's called uh, The Conversion. Uh, and it's George uh, is in love with this woman, uh, thinks she might be the one, but she breaks it off because her family is Latvian Orthodox <laughs> and uh, she could never marry someone from outside the church. So George decides overnight, yeah, I'm going to convert to this. And so I went to that <laughs> one just to, to watch the idea, especially with that you know, George unabashedly putting on this, you know, facade of, yeah, here's something that is incredibly weighty and personal to people. Let me just co-opt it for my very base needs and see where it gets me. Uh, Similarly, I always think back to um, the ATM code, which is the one where uh, George sort of kills Peterman's mother (laughs) and, you know, by saying his ATM code Vosco, and then that, you know, just spirals out of control into him. In the course of 22 minutes, they go from it starting with a small fight he has with Susan over the fact that he won't share his ATM code to 
by the end of it, a man is stuck in an ATM that is on fire and George is being begged to scream out his code to the entire world. It's just like, yep, this they earned this. They got here so logically and so perfectly. While at the same time, that moment being influenced by the three other stories that are going on. I mean, I, just being able to use those as models was was very helpful. And what I would do is not only just watch them and take notes, and I would beat them out for myself to really see, okay, how do they start these stories separately? When do they start to sort of meet, make two of the stories mash up and then eventually intertwine those? Because that's one of the things that happens, I found. They don't normally uh, just decide, okay, here are four stories, and now we're going to twist all four of them together. It's, okay, we're going to pair story A with story B and story C with story D, and then we ba- we bind A, B with C, D by the you know end of the third act. So it was as much about looking for the beats for the characters as it was about the overall ABC kind of back and forth structurally. Yeah, it was just being able to get a feel for, you know, figuring out, okay, how does this, yeah, structure on that on that foundational level? And then, okay, for stories that are sort of like this, George pursuing this a false identity or something like that, how will they drag that out? When will they start to make that fall apart? Things like that. And yeah, so I would, and as on top of just watching them, I would, you know, just you know, Google you know, if I couldn't find the actual script, I would just find some fan site where people were, you know, pointing up their transcripts and I would try to figure out, I'd put my own act breaks and things like that to figure out exactly what was going on there, you know, considering those roles were docs. True reverse engineering. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really was. And it's funny because there's this mantra about Seinfeld that it's a show about nothing. So to some people that might be intimidating going, well, how do you write a show about nothing? But it's almost, I feel like my perspective of it is they make trivial things serious and serious things trivial. Exactly. No, that it's, I mean, by definition, the show's going to be about something because it's characters pursuing wants. It's just a matter of, oh, these wants are being so blown out of proportion and people are going to absurd lengths, whether it's to get something real or to preserve their own dignity, whatever it is, which in turn, you know, leads to them absolutely debasing their dignity. Mm -hmm. Um, They just decide because they're such petty people, we're going to obsess about something that should be nothing and we're going to make it the biggest thing possible. And I know this may be hard to like quantify, but how much of refining did you do in terms of you bring Storm those basic ideas of okay, Seinfeld is going to be obsessed with dust. Kramer is going to have this whole box cutter incident. Basically, how long did it take for you to figure out, oh, these are the ABC stories for these characters, and it's kind of the perfect thematic back and forth? Yeah, so. The initial idea for the script at all came, let's say, you know, right around the beginning of March. And then I actually put the script out beginning of August. So in the, was that, five, you know, four or five months there, I spent the first few months just trying to think of, yeah, how do, after the first week when I had, you know, the basic story, you know, pitch lines in mind, I started starting to think, how do I possibly weave these together? And that took me a few months of on and off, you know, going to the coffee shop, you know, writing out one or two scenes that I understood how they would function, but then still having no idea how I was going to make the rest of this happen. And then finally, through sort of like brute force and just deciding, you know, after, you know, about three months, okay, I want to write this. I have to make this happen. Eventually, about 80% of the story beat-wise came together, you know, on a, on a Sherwood sheet. And then at that point, I just said, you know what, I'm never going to get 100% of this unless I just start writing it. So I put the rest of it, you know, over the next month or so, I wrote out the actual uh, script and, you know, filled in the blank as they came up. In terms of the actual, you know, writing of the real scenes that occurred, you know, in over the course of really only two weeks from, you know, completing my first draft to, you know, getting the final second or third one out there. And you know, I wrote the entire second act in like one night in my tutoring office, <laughs> st- like staying up between, I think I was there from like 6 p.m. after my last client 
I left to, I got the keys from my boss and left around 3 a.m. When I'm finishing something, I start to get this really weird psychosis where I'm convinced that, oh, if I'm working on this idea, someone else is also working on the exact <laughs> same idea. It's like the economics invisible hand part of my brain. And so I just like totally went into a psychotic mindset of type, 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 type. I have to get this up before anyone else was as if there was like some invisible man chasing me in the woods. <laughs> so you have this finished script. How does it go from being a final draft file on your computer to becoming a viral hit on the internet? I mean, that's the really absurd part. I just, you know, I wanted to give it the chance to go viral, um, but more concerned with making it go true viral. I was looking to make it go viral within my friend group. I knew to myself, okay, this is good. And more importantly than this is good, this is a very accurate representation of what I do and what I want to do, you know, in the in the TV writing space. So my goal was to make it go viral with amongst my friends um, whom you know might have had representation or worked on shows. And I was totally willing to, you know, use this as the chip that I called in, you know, saying, hey, if you ever share something with your manager, please let this be it. Uh, but I wanted to see if I could avoid using that. So I just posted the Google Doc, um, you know, PDF of it, you know, got the shareable link to that. And I just put that in my Twitter and I put it on my Facebook and just said, hey, I wrote this, you know, check it out if you want to. And luckily, you know, it was good enough that people, you know, just naturally started, you know, sharing it amongst, you know, amongst my friends. And then, uh, and a couple people did immediately reach out to me and said, yeah, we're forwarding this on to our reps, which was so by, you know, if I shared it at 11 a.m., by 2 p.m., I was satisfied, like, great, this accomplished everything it needed to. And then by the end of the night, it was going far beyond that. It was, you know, I had my, I am friends with um, uh, Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend from uh, NYU, and she, you know, was insanely kind enough to share it with her rep, whom uh, I eventually started working with, and just you know, it took on a life of its own through posts uh, like hers and through some other, you know, TV writers who, you know, shared it. And then by that second, by that first more or the first morning after, I had this guy, Sean McCarthy, uh, calling me from New York. He runs a blog called The Comics Comic. And uh, he, you know, did an interview with me by that afternoon. Split Sider reshared his interview and, you know, were calling me up for their own. I had said to my friend uh, a week before I shared it, was asking me, okay, what's your, you know, big time goal for this? I said, okay big but still somewhat existing within reality i would know this did everything i want to if i got an interview with slate and slate called me up within 24 hours i mean that was you know then within a week later i was you know talking to time and entertainment weekly and newsweek it's crazy it'll happen that fast it's absurd i it's you know the the power of a google doc i'm very happy with google doc uh although i still do not pay for their services i need more than 15 gigabytes luckily how many uh, people were aware of your script before it even went out through google docs and so forth there were probably about 10 different people i told about it uh in a serious capacity who i'd either look for notes from or just told hey this is coming but i mostly you know kept it close to my chest for the sake of I didn't want to be telling everyone about it and then not deliver on it. But by, you know, the middle of July, I knew something was going to come out. So I'm just like, hey, I have this idea. If you, you know, ask a few people to read it, the people's knowledge of it definitely increased within that first day. What were some of your favorite kind of reactions to your work? You mentioned Rachel Bloom obviously shared it, but were there managers and agents calling you up and telling you that they loved it? Did you have people that you admired retweeting it on Twitter? Like, what are some great stories from that? Yeah, I mean, especially in terms of Twitter, some of the biggest seals of approval I got on that front uh, were John Lovett, and uh, he um, started following me on Twitter. James Adomian retweeted it. Chris Kelly from SNL. Um, so it was a lot of insane people. One of the one of the coolest falls like got out of it that I think I uh, 
care about personally way more than anyone else would care about professionally. Uh, Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher Brandon McCarthy, uh, <laughs> their number four or five starter, got a great fastball. Uh, if he could just uh, keep it out of the air, he lets up too many home runs. But it's uh, a very specific uh, reference for our listeners. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure anyone who's listening to Paper Team, you know, really knows the Dodgers' deeper rotation. Oh, yeah, well, they, they've known Brandon's struggles, you know, with Tommy John surgery and you know keeping the ball down. But that said, uh, he followed me, and uh, I've direct messaged with him a couple times. So I like to pretend that I'm now friends with uh, baseball players. Yeah. <laughs> Did anyone f- who worked on Seinfeld react to it? So Entertainment Weekly tried to reach out to people for comment, and uh, they weren't able to get anyone on it. And I sort of heard through the grapevine some of the people that I met with uh, on the commercial side were like, "We'd love to, you know, get in touch. Uh, we we know Jerry's reps. We're gonna, you know, get in touch with them and see if we can get his take on it." Mm-hmm. And they emailed back the next day. They're like, "So yeah, Jerry's rep uh, mentioned it to him when they were having a meeting last night." And uh, Jerry's response was, uh, that is a very interesting and unique idea, which was so blatantly code for what he actually said was, why the f*** would someone do that? No, I don't want to read it. (laughs) So, and yeah, no one else has uh, responded uh, directly. In general, uh, I think the group group of of the four actors, plus Larry David, are probably pretty precious with the series as a whole. I, if I had to imagine someone would be open to it, I would think it would probably be Julie Louise Dreyfus. Uh, but, uh, you know, haven't heard anything back. That's okay. There'll be a time for that later on. You can bring it awkwardly when you're going to be on a comedian's uh, getting coffee or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. That's certain. I'm certainly next in line for that. Yeah. <laughs> the writer in between jobs who no one outside of the deep internet has ever heard of. <laughs> Were there any kind of negative reactions? I mean, it's such a sensitive topic. How much, if any, uh, blowback did you get? So the biggest blowback in terms of people having a mic and, you know, actually having listeners was there's a Seinfeld podcast <laughs> and they gave, they brought it up, you know, because they'd read an article about it. And I decided, OK, I have to listen to this for five seconds, see what they say. And it was, of course, the reaction I, you know, I expected from a Seinfeld podcast and anyone would expect if they wrote a big script of, you know, some precious material to people. They had the total super fan reaction of like, yeah, I just didn't think it nailed, you know, this and. <laughs> And, you know, I don't know. I feel like we've gone down that road before. It was pretty big, you know, surface level to me. Blah, blah, blah. It's just like, all right, fine. Yeah, you, you guys are welcome to that opinion. In terms of people actually addressing the not, like the, the September 11th content of it. So I definitely got a few tweets and a few emails from people who had direct relationships to the attacks. Let's say a rough number was 10 people like that contact me in one or two, in different ways. But, uh, and out of that 10, I had one or two people tweet at me like, you should be ashamed of yourselves, you know, uh, yourself, this is, you know, absolutely inappropriate that you're spitting on the graves of, you know, 3,000 people, things like that. The rest of the people who had those direct relationships that tweeted out at me, whether they were firefighters or, hey, I worked in the World Trade Center, you know, one guy said, one guy said to me, you know, I worked in an investment firm, my best friend died in the towers that day. Uh, he was a huge Seinfeld fan, and he would have been the script's biggest fan, like, he would have sure. been wine, he would have been the first person to be making 9-11 jokes the next day, and and I'd really appreciate, you know, you writing this and not being afraid to tackle that. So those responses, you know, were huge. And I take all of those responses, positive and negative, equally, you know, if people have that close connection, you know, especially the people who had a negative response to it and were calling me out. I can't object or try to change their response in any way. You know, you know what you feel. 
I certainly respect you not appreciating this or feeling, you know, disrespected by it. Uh, and all I can say is, you know, I, I'm, tr- I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. I, I won't never knew a try to mediate their response to it. Where I would have less enthusiasm isn't the right word, but uh, less, you know, room to consider someone calling me out like that is there are certainly, you know, other people who tweeted at me who just said in general, like, you have no right to do something like this. It's like, if you don't have that personal connection, then just as I wouldn't mediate the response of someone who did have that connection, you don't have the right to sort of censor everyone and say, this is not how you respond to tragedy. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask you to enjoy it. But at the same time, you don't have any special privilege that allows you to say, yes, I'm the arbiter of what is good taste, what is bad taste, when is too soon, when is not too soon. So those ones didn't phase me at all. And, you know, those are the types of opinions that, you know, I don't think anyone who's covering sensitive materials can worry about. All you can do if you are trying to tackle something that is of a very weighty nature is make sure that you can sleep at night um, with both the product that you've put out there and with that potentially negative response that you are going to elicit from the people who do have the connection. How dare you sleep at night, Billy? Exactly. No, I, <laughs> it's all these uh, judgments based on service level more so than anything else. Yeah, that's it's it's this weird kind of ownership that really does bug me in, in terms of the way people deal with tragedies like 9-11. The idea that theirs is the correct response and part it becomes part of their identity that they must, you know have this sort of stoic reverence for the attack and therefore could not possibly make light of it. Again, that is absolutely your choice if that's how you want to, you know, live in the ashes of this day. But everyone else has to get through the day, you know, differently. So do not try to impose any of our It really becomes, for people like that, I really feel like in many ways it becomes like a religion of, you know, like, oh, a 9-11 reverence or reverence for whatever else it is. It's just like, no, do not impose your religious views on me. I have my own religion or my own, you know, spiritual views as to how to approach feelings like this. Right. I think in a weird way, part of the thing that made it, you know, acceptable or I didn't find it in any way offensive um, was because it was so true to the show and it did feel like those are genuine things that those characters would do. And then this is how the show would handle that kind of thing. It wasn't deliberately exploitative or graphic or anything like that for the sake of, of creating that provocation. It was it was a genuine attempt at a, a Seinfeld episode, and it just happened to, to include this topic. And that's ultimately how I not only want the episode to be read and seen, you know, in terms of, okay, that's how it's being judged, but that was my, my goal with it in terms of what I was talking about earlier, like, okay, do I take this to some insanely uh, product place of, oh, let's just point out how absurd this idea is and make it as graphic as possible for the sake of making it insane, or do I have, you know, that level of catharsis? It's like, you can't do either, because to do either is to sort of tip your hat at the very beginning to, I shouldn't be doing this in the first place. Mm -hmm. And in writing it, I'm obviously asserting, you know, my right to create this material. And in a larger sense, yeah, I am suggesting to people it is okay to to deal with weighty topics like this in a manner that you are comfortable, even if others might reject that uh, that medium. So you just have to go out straight down the middle and just say, yeah, this is a Seinfeld episode first, and this is within the rules here of what a Seinfeld episode is. This is how Seinfeld would handle this topic, presumably, or at least you know, this is what my take on that is. You know, you can agree or disagree, like or not like it. Right, and I think it's because, as you mentioned, you really more focused on the spec aspect rather than the stunt aspect. I'm curious about your thoughts on 
In what context do you think aspiring TV writers should write a stunt spec, if any? Or how should they approach such a sample? The best advice I can give, and the reason I ultimately said to myself, I have to do this, is because I fundamentally understood that this was something that not only was it that uh, it was something that I wanted people to associate my sort of writing brand with this type of content. But what I realized in the aftermath of writing it was when I was telling people about the idea, other people, you know, would get on board for it and be like, oh my God, that's really funny. You should write it. But whether or not they were positive or some people said, wait a minute, oh, that sounds insane. No one seemed to immediately think, oh, I should go out and write that myself. Or why didn't I think of this? Everyone sort of had the idea of, wow, that's an idea. I have no idea how that could possibly work. Mm-hmm. You got to roll with it. And what I realized since is anything that I've ever been super proud of creating in the writing space or elsewhere, it's almost always been something where I describe that idea to another person and their initial reaction is neither positive nor negative. It's just confusion. It's just like, what What on earth are you describing me right now? That <laughs> th- these, these words don't make sense together in the order you've put them. Because it's so unique to you. And- exactly. And so that's the, the sort of the trigger that I've learned to now listen for in my brain of, oh, wait a minute, because I am the only one who can produce this idea or at least that I know of, I therefore must produce this idea because if it's, you know, if I'm the one making it, therefore, uh, uh, and I'm the only one who can, it's going to, my rules for how to create that are almost by default going to be correct. And again, it's something that's going to help, you know, people understand what is that I specifically do. It's not just me copying the voice of a show for the sake of, oh, see, I can slide into Seinfeld or I can slide into 30 Rock. It's here's what my unique perspective is. So Mm -hmm. to get back to your original question, you should write a stunt spec or any spec or any original screenplay or whatever it is you're going to do because you know that you, that it is what truly what you want to be writing, the voice you want to be putting out to the world. And you have a sense of really no one else can do this in the way that I'm going to do this. And because ultimately, you know, that's what's going to sell you as a writer or in any medium as a performer, you know, as an artist, as a dancer, whatever it is. And on top of that, it also, this is sort of like the narcissistic side of me. I was also very consciously aware as some people were warning me, like, you know, some people aren't going to take well of this. I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm, I totally get that. And if this is the last thing I ever write and this, you know, for some reason blows up in the opposite direction and gets me, you know, stoned and, you know, thrown (laughs) out of Hollywood, this is exactly the thing I want to go out for. Mm. I want to, you know, leave all my cards on the table and say, yep, this is exactly what I want to be doing. Because if you write something that's mediocre and that's derivative and that's designed to sort of suit the market and it doesn't work out, then you're going to be left feeling like, oh, I I sort of wasted my time there. This again, though, if I, you know, if it didn't work out, I would still have been so happy that I created in the first place. You need to sort of be comfortable with the idea of if all this blows up, you know, I'm still going to be very happy with myself and content that I went out, you know, my way, because that's whether up or down, that's the only way that you are going to go anywhere. The, The only way, you know, the guaranteed way to remain in neutral is to try to be emulating everyone else and not putting your own spin on it. 
So let's talk about uh, agents and managers and reps for a minute. You obviously generated a lot of interest for putting the script out there, uh, and you had people perhaps interested in talking to you. How do you navigate that? How did it all come up? That was insane. Again, I'll give a shout out to Rachel Bloom, who uh, within the first day, I was going to text with her. I'm like, I don't know how to handle this. She's like, yep, I'm going to I'm gonna talk you through it. And she was so nice. We were texting on the phone. And because uh, she had a similar experience in terms of how she broke through back in 2000, summer of 2010, she bought this amazing music video. Ray Bradbury, <laughs> and that was the first of her many music videos she put up online. How her you know personal brand got going, how and based on that, within a day or two, she had the managers and the reps. And Ben Gillette had made a video that was saying <laughs> Rachel Bloom is the next new amazing person. You know her raw sexuality is incredible, <laughs> and so that started the journey for her. But. Essentially, it was just like, yeah, number one, enjoy this insanity. Uh, it's only going to happen once like this. And two, just sort of, you know, go through at your own pace. Don't go running around in a million different directions just because everyone is telling you you have to do what makes sense to you. In terms of the way that I eventually navigated it was, first of all, you know, figuring out do I want you know managers or agents or both. And uh, as I was lucky enough to be in a situation where I was able to make that decision, I ultimately decided I wanted both and, you know, wanted a manager because I'm also a performer as well, you know, looking to, you know, make acting happen eventually, you know, equally down the line. But I sort of decided, okay, let me start with locking down management and not worrying about any of the other agents or any or the studios, you know, who want to take general means right now. Let me lock down management because that's going to sort of going to be the core relationship I have here. You know, that should be, if you're getting a manager, I think that should you should be looking for, you know, okay, who's going to be my business mentor throughout this? Who's going to be the person I want to be checking in with? Who is going to support my ideas no matter what, while at the same time telling me, okay, is this something that we can realistically expect to get you a job, you know, or sell in this market, things like that. And so I happened uh, to luck out and uh, get some great managers over at Three Arts. And then after that, I was like, okay, well, now let's make agents happen because I do want someone who is, you know, much more, you know, hard-nosed business-minded on this stuff while still having a great artistic sense of that ended up with a, a team over at UTA who are absolutely amazing and then from there you know let them sort of orchestrate the okay the what they call the couch and water bottle tour of you know <laughs> Los Angeles meeting the different production companies and stuff but yeah just breaking just like anything else it was about taking this very insane disorganized moment and figuring out how to break down into reasonable steps just like I did with the script okay I'm just going to focus on management right now okay that will once that's settled now I can start thinking about agency and then I can actually go out and take the meetings from there how did you prepare yourself on the creative level uh, before you got kind of that interest did you have a bunch of samples at the ready pilots features whatever yeah so in terms of like the the real long-term prep for this i uh went to nyu i was um a student in the dramatic grind department there and focused in tv and sitcom and late night type stuff so i had some samples from there they're not really the active samples in my packet the script went out last August, about nine months or so before that, around a little before Thanksgiving of the year previous in 2015, I'd been in LA for about a year or so. And I'd said to myself, and in the first year, I was just sort of like a total mess running around a million different directions. I was trying to break through the, into the improv scene here and also trying out stand up and also writing and looking for a PA job and every possible thing you can do. And that big, huge mess was not working for me at all. So again, I sort of decided to simplify. I decided to specialize and said, okay, you are most likely to break through as a writer. You're not only, you know, not going to break through as an actor right now, but you're also just playing a PA. So don't try to climb that classical ladder right now. And so I just, you know, allowed myself to 
take a breath, not try to do a million things. And for a few months, I was just going to coffee shops at night and writing, not trying to do anything else. And just living with the idea of, yep, you're not improvising right now. Yep, that hurts. But this is going to be, you know, the best use of your time. And in that time, I wrote a pilot that I was very satisfied with. And that in many ways, just the work on that helped me, you know, transition into writing the Seinfeld spec to take on a very... um, a weighty challenge structurally like that. But yeah, so in terms of what was actually in my portfolio, I had the, I had my pilot as well. I had a bunch of sketch stuff. I had done, you know, a lot of sketch at NYU and time since then. Um, And then also when I was at NYU during uh, my senior year there in the spring of 2012, I was an intern at SNL. And through that was able to uh, weasel my way into submitting jokes to weekend update. Mm -hmm. And then after I was, you know, uh, stopped, interning there I was taken on as a full-time freelance contributor for weekend update and so was submitting jokes for them for five years so had a big packet and or not a packet doesn't really stay relevant that long in terms of writing monologue jokes but yeah. you know had a lot of experience <laughs> there uh in terms of being able to you know write up fresh ones had you written uh, a traditional kind of uh, spec script before the Seinfeld one I had in classes uh back at NYU like so like my very first spec script that I ever wrote was a 30 rock um back in like 2010 and since then I'd written you know freaks and geeks uh, uh, that was in my packet and that I still do, you know, sort of, you know, show to people now and then since Freaks and Geeks is in such an odd space. It's never really been <laughs> duplicated. Yeah. So that, yeah, it remains half relevant even, you know, 20 years later. And I, a couple times, you know, tried to, you know, write other specs, you know, since then there was a class that I was starting to write a modern family spec in, you know, back when that show was first taking off. But without understanding, you know, the rules that I eventually came to that I was talking about in terms of recognizing, you know, that's only worth doing something if only you can do it and you're uniquely excited about that project, I realized now that's why some of those other things, you know, failed, why I never finished that Modern Family spec, even though it had some really good jokes in it, it was really, you know, had some fun stories. I think I, you know, subconsciously knew this is not something that you are writing for the sake of elevating your own unique voice. This is something that you are doing because Modern Family is a hot show right now and you think you're supposed to be doing it. One of the best thing that has come out of this in so many ways artistically has been being able to understand that rule, the importance of that rule for myself and being able to now follow that instinct and, you know, take it from instinct to something that I'm, you know, understanding on a liminal level. Was it important to those managers and agents you were meeting with to read your other material before or after they met you to, to make sure you could kind of back it up? Or were they just happy to sign you off of the heat of this? There were definitely places that that would have signed me, you know, had I, you know, not had anything else. I think the places that I went with, Three Arts and UTA, I can't say for sure whether or not this is true, but I imagine they would have been, you know, less enthusiastic or you know, made a smaller sort of personnel investment in me had I not had, you know, a few other things to prove. I I think the pilot that I have is able to show that I'm able to take the unique sensibility that leads to a 9-11 Seinfeld spec and replicate that with other characters, with other stories, and keep it rolling. Uh, And then on top of that, I had, you know, content that was online in terms of, you know, sketches and stuff. So I was able to show, like, okay, yeah, this is something that I've been working towards for a while. Yeah, it's it's definitely entirely possible had this come out of absolutely nowhere and it's the only thing that I'd ever written that uh, I would have been picked up by someone and, you know, or could have still gotten a job. Um, but it definitely didn't hurt. And again, it's, you know, I wasn't showing them, you know, you know, some old spec that was, you know, technically good, but, uh, you know, it wasn't my voice. I was able to show them specifically, hey, this is my work. This is the stuff that I do, you know, uniquely. 
Yeah, I think it also shows how reliable you are as a writer, especially on TV. You need to be there day in, day mm-hmm. out. It's a weekly kind of business. So you got repped. What happened after that? Then I went on like sort of, you know, the couch and water bottle tour uh, and, you know, met people at, you know, the different studios and networks and things like that. It wasn't perfect timing in terms of when that script should have come out to be able to get a job. Staffing seasons, you know, happens in the spring. So it wasn't uh, immediately easy to find a job in that sense. But actually, the way I ultimately did end up getting staffed on Family Guy was going back to the very, you know, first or second day when the script came out. One of the people who reached out to me via Twitter was the head writer for Family Guy, Alex Sulkin. We were already following each other, and he just, you know, DM'd me, said, hey, read the script. Um, We're looking for someone new, even though, you know, we're already going in the season. And, you know, this looks fantastic to me. You know, we'd love to have you come in. And then there was a little bit of, you know, back and forth of, like, trying to actually figure something out. But a month later, you know, once my reps were settled and everything like that, it was like, yeah, no, we can finally make this meeting happen. Let's come on in. And I went in for a meeting expecting it to be an interview and uh yeah let's let's keep thinking about this guy you know uh you know essentially let, let's keep him on file mm-hmm. and uh met him and uh the uh, other amazing showrunner there with Chappelle and um they it was like a nice five minute like essentially let's make sure he's not crazy interview and then by the end it's just like all right <laughs> yeah so we're gonna then. exactly so we're you know at the end we're gonna call your reps and uh yeah see if we can hammer something out and so I walked out of there you know texting uh my friend and it's like I, I think I might be working at Family Guy I don't know though this could be happening but yeah it was <laughs> It was very surreal and how quick, you know, quickly that job actually set itself up, both in terms of the initial interest and then in terms of the final offer. It was pretty insane. Mm And was this the first show that you had staffed on? Yeah, this was you know the first time I'd ever been you know truly staffed. You know, I'd done you know different types of weird little freelance work like uh, the SNL Weekend Update jokes, mm. and I had worked um, at BET a few years ago, uh, <laughs> writing punch ups for a dating show that never aired. Think almost you know think something like you know Next or, or uh, Blind Date, writing like these little pop up jokes, making fun of the contestants. Uh, That's that, amazing. Yeah, that was quite the two weeks. Experience. It's the only job I've ever been ghosted from. That's uh, how I got <laughs> fired there. It was uh, okay. Yeah, great work. Um, uh, we we might not be in on Monday, so uh, just e- I'll email you when I know what's going on. And nothing happens on Monday. And then on Tuesday, it's like, hey, it's just uh, fine, uh, following up. Should I come in today or tomorrow? And then I'm emailing again in a week, just following up, and never heard back. And the show you can drive never past aired. the studio a lot, and they turn all the lights off. Exactly. Like, <laughs> So I don't know how much you can say, but what is the experience like of writing for Family Guy? It was a fantastic experience. Um, It was this really solid mix uh, that I um, really look for in new creative environments where it was both personally very welcoming and friendly and professionally very much like a baptism by fire um everyone there was you know incredibly kind and you know willing to offer any advice in the world you know very friendly and then but sort of you know when you're in the writer's room so many of the writers there have been there for many many years and either you know were writers when the show first started or when the show first came back on the air or you know came up as PAs and writers and things like that everyone knows the voice of the show and the characters on such a deep intrinsic level that you know you can have a a joke pitch that is you know 
pretty much on the money that is going to be the right idea eventually but if it's not worded exactly right coming from exactly the right character or, um, or back and forth between the right two characters and you're not just you know nailing that voice perfectly people are just you know aren't going to laugh not to be dicks or anything but just because they have that such an intense you know screening process set up in their brains for what does this joke work or not so that was really you know tough to you know in in, in the best way to just gradually, you know, learn by doing and try to just have those equations in my own mind of, okay, what works here? What does not? What failed about this last one? Okay, you know, subtract X from that. Let's try again. And so over many months, you know, gradually having more and more success, you know, with pitches, um, you know, uh, was uh, was a really cool experience. And that's, you know, how I like to learn, you know, it, it, if I'm not struggling early on with something, then that's potentially another signifier for me that maybe this isn't the right fit because maybe I'm not learning as much as I need to right now. What are some of the lessons that you took from writing your Seinfeld spec and other samples that you brought into the room? I think certainly when I eventually went off and wrote my own episode, it was the importance of being fundamentally comfortable with my story outline in terms of many of the scripts that I'd written in the past on my own that sort of fizzled out after 10 pages and I never picked them up again. I realized going back, it was just that you'd, had a fun concept but you didn't know where it was going story-wise and you weren't feeling comfortable on that level and you didn't know where you were building to and so just making sure that I you know understood character motivations from the get-go uh, and you know was essentially able to start with an ending and then work back from there is something that is always helpful for me and yeah in terms of you know sort of the day-to-day it was well at the same time trying to get into a very specific voice at the same time not discounting you know whatever personal flavor that I had for it and again that might mean that a lot of my pitches you know didn't work because you know I you know my sense of humor you know in a vacuum might not be exactly the same as the sensibility that is needed for a family guy joke but also but that doesn't mean it's not worth pitching those those jokes because it's great to hear something fail out loud and (laughs) get a better sense of it that way and also so I, I could actually, you know, out of my head right now, equate this a little bit to how I approach acting auditions. There's a quote that I saw a few years ago. Um, Brian Cranston was had this little video that was going viral on YouTube about his experience with auditions and when they started to click for him. And he was saying like, yeah, I've gone for all these parts and I knew I was nailing this audition, you know, on, on you know, a, a basic fundamental level, but I wasn't getting any callbacks, things like that. And then he says, he just, I just decided one day Rather than trying to, you know, read correctly for this part, I'm going to just give the best performance I can. It might not be right for the movie that this part is going into, but I'm going to give a great-ass monologue right now with the sides they've given me. And in doing so, I'm going to let them know, I'm a, you know, this is the type of great actor that I am, and you're not going to give me this part because I didn't got give you the reading for, you know, man number three that you needed. But next time you need Brian Cranston for a movie, the part matches up with me as an actor, you're going to call on me first. And that's what led me to my larger philosophy for, you know, writing something that only I can do. But um, in, yeah, in terms of, you know, pitching sort of making sure I'm still pitching my own voice. Yeah. A lot of times that's not going to be the right joke for, you know, Stewie or Peter or something like that. But it, at some point, you know, people are going to have a better expectation of what I do really well. And there's going to be a time down the line in this job or the next where people decide that's the voice we need at this exact moment to solve this problem, whether we're talking about a joke or story structure or anything like that. Let's, you know, use him for what we know he does that happens to match up with this particular need. 
So having such a strong sense of who you are as a writer and the kind of things that you want to do, um, what do you feel is next for you or what would you like to be next? I mean, I'm looking to, you know, look for uh, at the moment, you know, see what's coming up in terms of staffing opportunities. I want to keep that momentum going. And also I'm experimenting right now. I'm not much of a screenplay guy normally, but, you know, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how can I take those ideas that, you know, are, you know, unique to me or uniquely important to me? Uh, and use them to motivate myself, you know, to get started in a medium that I'm not necessarily as used to or as naturally comfortable in as I am. You know, for a feature length script. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, for features. So you know, experimenting with that day to day in the coffee shops right now and having a lot of fun <laughs> fun there. Gotta do coffee shops. I cannot work at home. I never get anything done and I have MLB network at home and now I have the package that lets me watch any baseball game ever. So it, it's very disturbing. <laughs> I like fantasy baseball way too much. But yeah, more than anything, yeah, it's it's almost a um, a reflexive, you know, it's a, a answer that's you know defining the word by using the word. But really, more than anything, it's not being afraid to look for a project that's correct for me. When I took the Family Guy job, I had to you know really think and you know make sure. And ultimately, I am so it was such a perfect first job and a perfect job, you know, in, in in any respect to end up there. And I'm so glad I took it. But I really thought deeply about you know okay, is this right? Are there, you know, things that might not be right about it? And there was, you know, I, I had like this, you know, philosophical, almost like night, night of fear and trembling about it, where I was, you know, considering not uh, taking it. And in terms of whatever comes up next, you know, if I'm lucky enough to have offers, you know, on, on the sitcom front this fall, I'm not going to be terribly afraid to to not take a job if it's not a really solid fit overall. It doesn't have to be perfect. Nothing is going to be. But I think being able to... Just as I was able to, you know, say, I'm only writing in the coffee shop right now. I'm not going out and trying to, you know, make it get on some new improv team. I'm not going out and trying to audition for parts, you know, that aren't, you know, good for me. I'm just going to focus on this one thing. Similarly, just being comfortable with that discomfort of I might be missing out on something right now, but ultimately it doesn't matter if that thing is not the right thing. What are some current TV shows that inspire you or you would love to work on at some point? In terms of what's on right now, I mean, uh, on the comedy front, there's nothing bigger for me than Rick and Morty. Um, Dan Harmon and Justin Rowland are just such a perfect combination of, you know, Harmon has an amazing brain for structure and is great coming himself. But then on top of that, you have Justin Rowland with just the most insane, absurd ideas, doing something that only he can do himself. These, you know, mumbling idiots, you know, who are constantly <laughs> drooling. To me, that's some of the most exciting stuff on TV in terms of, you know, both the combination of the humor and the structure. Absolutely. You know, that's... Yeah, I you know I loved so much that season finale from season two, you know where you know Rick's getting thrown off of prison and sending on this very dark tone, and the show is so unafraid to go into new territory both in terms uh, of genre and in terms of emotional tone. You know, suddenly a show that was very you know dark and nihilistically funny is going to a place of real heart that. Who knows how they're going to navigate that when it comes back? And on top of that, they threw themselves into this absolutely insane predicament of Rick is in the greatest supermax prison in the world. We know we need to get him out. How are we possibly going to figure that out? All right, we just will when we come back in a year, in a year to start writing it. So let's write ourselves into a corner. I don't watch it that regularly because it's too annoying for me at this point. But The Walking Dead, 
<laughs> the Walking Dead has some amazing seasons. In a good season, they just shoot everyone and aren't afraid to let people die. And they're not afraid to, if they don't know what the next episode is going to bring, they'll write it when they write it. So just briefly, Twitter is obviously a big part of uh, getting your spec script out there. And I know that you're very active on Twitter, writing jokes, posting stuff every day. Tell us about how you've used that and how people can use that to, to help them as a writer. Twitter is interesting because I got into the game on it, you know relatively late at least in terms of i shouldn't say late but when twitter when did it start like you know it first became to like real big prominence in like 08 you know around the election and then for a couple years you had people suddenly making it really huge on twitter people like rob delaney megan amram uh different comedians like that who were suddenly getting who had already been you know either like rob delaney or a stand-up or megan amram was just getting out of college at the time and you know had their unique voice and were just rocketed to much much bigger opportunities than they would have been otherwise deservedly so and then i started you know just tweeting you know uh, in my spare time you know in like 2012 like i finally decided like okay whatever this thing is i don't understand it but i'll start you know just making some jokes online and by that point i think that's right around the time that they that it started to you know the, the gates closed on it <laughs> and it's just like okay we're not just gonna randomly take someone off of twitter anymore just because they're you know funny but it was still an amazing opportunity for you know anyone to just gradually hone their voice i've gone i i'm constantly going through like cycles with twitter of whether or not like i feel like i'm I'm writing solid jokes or i'm just writing random stuff that's not really going anywhere but even when you are sort of in the twitter wilderness it's a great way if you trust that there's a deeper kernel or theme to that you're working with that it gives you the space and the room to in a very small stakes way refine your voice this uh guy i'd really recommend anyone follow uh, one of my best friends former roommate uh bowen yang is amazing on twitter and there was a time like probably like five years ago when the stuff that he was writing i there, it was just pure nonsense i truly did not understand the motivation beyond us in terms of a single thing he was writing and i wasn't necessarily even finding it funny i was more than anything concerned for bowen uh <laughs> but event but he just kept writing and there was clearly a consistent bowen voice and then just one day, like about like three or four years ago, it just clicked into, oh my God, this is hilarious. He's figured out how to take whatever this engine is that's driving him. And also it, be- it just became understandably hilarious to, you know, anyone who'd be reading it. And that I feel like has allowed his wider comedic voice to then spawn from it and since then you know he's been you know a guest star on broad city and he's got an amazing podcast uh, himself called lost culturistas it's definitely a great place to incubate um your voice and gradually figure out what it is because that's and that's you know i've done that in a few different ways on my main twitter and i had a bunch of you know little parody twitters and some got you know you know a few thousand followers and things like that but again it's got a low ceiling for where it can directly take you at this point but it's a very uh, high floor in terms of you know supporting your failure and it is something that you because you get that instant affirmation of you know likes or retweets or something you can just gradually you know follow that thread of okay what you know, what is the link between these five tweets that happen to boom, you know, work well. All right, before we get off, do you have any resources that you want to give for writers and aspiring stunt speckers? 
Interesting. I mean, one thing that I found out uh, after I was, you know, looking online on like these old, you know, 2002 Seinfeld fan sites for, you know, homemade transcripts, I found out that the Writers Guild uh, Library, uh, right, the Writers Guild space on, uh, what is it, you know, La Brea and Third? Third and Fairfax. Third and Fairfax. Thank you very much. Yeah. So you can go in there. You can read the real scripts. That would have been very helpful <laughs> in times A for me. But hey, I like the journey that I went on. That was fun. Honestly, though, there's there's nothing that I can like really share resource wise other than, you know, that if you haven't heard if anyone hadn't heard of it, the biggest resource is giving yourself the mental space to breathe for a second, you know, whether that's a literal second or, you know, several months or a year in order to figure out what it is you truly want to be doing. I tend to always have that writer reaction, you know, uh, of like, no, I don't know what I want to be doing. I just want, why do I have to choose? Like, you know, like I always constantly think back to, you know, that scene adaptation where the Nicolas Cage character is like, what if, what if, you know, it's uh, something about a script where nothing happens, where, you know, people just exist and, you know, and that whole awful, you know, (laughs) self-defeating, you know, mindset of like, why, why aren't I enough as I am? And, but yeah, just giving yourself the space to breathe and decide you're going to make the hard decision to, in one way or another, specialize and figure out what that specialty will be and embrace it for long enough to either see its success or learn from its failure. Well, on that note, we would like to thank you, dear listeners, for taking the time to hear Billy's thoughts on stunt specking. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 45. Yeah, if you'd like to leave us some reviews, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And any reviews that you leave are going to help us get more listeners, and uh, it'll make us feel nice. And once again, <laughs> uh, we would also like to thank our sponsor, the Tracking Boys Launchpad Writing Competitions. So Paper Team listeners can actually save $15 off their next purchase with them. Just use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout to receive your discount. And you can learn more about all the Launchpad's current and upcoming writing competitions by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at tvcalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. What are you on Twitter, Billy? At Billy Domino. Nice. How do you spell Domino for the listeners? D-O-M-I-N-E-A-U. French, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) If you have any feedback, thoughts, or opinions, you can send them to us at ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we'll be doing an overview of TV character. How do you write compelling character? Uh, Billy, what are your thoughts on this? Write a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Solid advice. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.